Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. National Geographic Documentary Films, in partnership with acclaimed filmmaker Don Porter and Trailblazing Studios, is set to premiere a feature documentary film that sheds a new light on the century-old period of intense racial conflict. Rise Again, Tulsa, and The Red Summer comes 100 years after the two-day Tulsa massacre in 1921 that led to the murder of hundreds of Black people and left thousands homeless and displaced. The film will be premiering on National Geographic in commemoration of Juneteenth, and that would be on June 18th. And we're joined today by the collaborator with Don Porter on this wonderful film, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer, as well as Washington Post reporter, journalist, and that would be Deneen Brown. Deneen, welcome to Film School Radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. In reading a little bit about your background, um, you have been writing about Tulsa for a while. It's been a subject of interest. How did you hear about Tulsa? Okay. I like to answer that question by saying my people are from Oklahoma. I was born in in Oklahoma. Um, My great-grandmother lived in Tulsa. She was a Rito. My grandmother was born in Boley, which is an all-Black town about 60 miles from Tulsa. And you will find out that many Black people fled the massacre in Tulsa for the surrounding all-Black towns. My father lives in Tulsa now. He built his church in Greenwood. So the how I got started working on the story was literally in 2018, I drove from Kansas across the Cimarron Turnpike, which is a tornado alley. And I came to visit my father and my stepmother. And I I said to my father, let's go have lunch on Black Wall Street. Because at the time, I had been researching Black history for the Washington Post. There's a blog at the Washington Post called Retropolis, and it really concentrates on the news and gives people historical context for what's happening in the news. So I was on a team of reporters focusing on history. And in particular, I was writing a lot about black history. So I say to my dad, let's go have lunch on Black Wall Street. We're at a soul food cafe, fried catfish, (laughs) sweet potatoes and cabbage. And I look around and I see all of this development. I see a minor league baseball stadium, yoga studio, yogurt shop, new luxury apartment complex. And I say to myself, Black Wall Street, the site of this really horrible massacre, the 1921 Tulsa race massacre that left more than 300 Black people dead, more than 800 Black people injured, 1,200 homes and Black businesses owned by Black people destroyed, literally 35 square blocks of this prosperous Black community, so prosperous, that Booker T. Washington called it Negro Wall Street. Destroyed. I mean, it looked like a bomb had gone off here. I knew that from researching history. So the the development was a contradiction to me. It was like a, a, a contradiction because it felt like it was sacred ground. I fly back to DC, 
have a conversation with my editor, Linda Robinson, about what I saw on this visit with my father and my editor, who's really great, fabulous at story editing. She says, that's a great story. And so the editors at the Washington Post actually sent me back to Tulsa to do reporting on the ground. And this is where I spent time more than a week with black activists on the ground here in Tulsa. And they take me to various sites in Tulsa uh, related to the massacre. At one point they make me get out of the car and walk with my hands up like this, hands up, don't shoot. You see that really famous picture of black men being marched after the massacre down to the convention center uh, at gunpoint into these, what they called internment camps. I'm walking like this. And that's the point when I feel the story. This councilwoman, Vanessa Hill Harper and her campaign manager, Christy Williams, they take me to Oakland Cemetery, which is a public owned cemetery. And they say, this is where scientists and in, in the investigation in 1998 found uh, with ground penetrating radar, they discovered anomalies underneath the ground that they said were consistent with mass graves, but the city closed that investigation and never dug. In September of 2018, my story lands on the front page of the Washington Post. A day or two later, there's a community meeting here in Greenwood where Mayor G.T. Bynum is talking about plans for development in Greenwood and North Tulsa. And there's a pastor of Vernon AME Church, which is a historic church in Greenwood. In fact, where Black people ran to that church to seek refuge during the massacre. Pastor Reverend Robert Turner, during that meeting, he holds up my story and he says to the mayor, you wouldn't have this land to develop had there not been a massacre. What are you going to do about it? And that's when Mayor Bynum announces that the city is going to reopen its search for mass graves. So many of the activists in Tulsa tell me that that story because it brought national attention to the massacre, that my story was a catalyst for the current government to announce the reopening of the search for mass graves of black people who who were killed during that horrific massacre in 1921. Where does Don Porter come into the equation? In June, 2019, I write a story for National Geographic magazine It was going to set the stage for Trump coming to Tulsa. And I said to my editor, Deborah Simmons, everybody, all the reporters are going to start with the arrest of Dick Rowland, the Black teenager at the courthouse. Many people say that that was the spark for the the massacre. And I said, why don't we explain to the readers Red Summer, how this horrific reign of terror during Red Summer actually set the stage for Tulsa. That story is published in National Geographic in June 2019. And when National Geographic TV begins exploring how to do a film project related to the Tulsa race massacre, they connect with Don Porter and they pull Don Porter in as the director of this project to explore the Tulsa race massacre as it relates to Red Summer. And I am pulled in as a consultant And when Don Porter comes out onto the project, she decides to follow me on camera as I do my reporting in Tulsa. 
and then in other sites where massacres occurred during the Red Summer. Let's talk about Red Summer and the circumstances and the breadth of the attacks during this summer on the African-American communities around, predominantly in the South, but certainly not exclusive to the South. Is there a particular spark? Is there something in the, in the politics of the nation, which we do get in, into the film, a little bit of a spoiler, it is, there, you lay it out, but just in general, what was it about the, the political and cultural and social uh, setting of that time that, start, that seemed to be the, the platform for this to happen? So Red Summer is a reign of terror that happens during the summer of 1919. I argue that it actually began in 1917 in East St. Louis when white mobs attack Black people, pulling them off of streetcars, beating them, clubbing them, burning them. Uh, so Red Summer is a period in 1919. It's a reign of terror that engulfed at least 26 cities across the country. Those cities include Washington, D.C., Omaha, Nebraska, Chicago, Illinois, Knoxville, Tennessee, Houston, Texas. San and Francisco? San Francisco, I believe. Is yes, yes. And then yeah. um, Elaine, Arkansas. When white mobs attacked Black people and Black communities, and I argue it sets the stage for the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. So what's happening in 1919 politically? You see the research, a second resurgence of the Klan. A few years prior to that, Woodrow Wilson had shown the movie Birth of a Nation in the White House. And, and, was, and praised it as, as the greatest motion picture that will ever be made, basically. Yes, he praised the film. And that, yeah. that film you know, created this atmosphere where people believe that they're all <laughs> Black men out there attacking white women, which was a false notion. I just want to inject just how consequential this film was. Cinema in this country was just beginning to become something that people went to see on a regular basis. And in terms of the popularity of, of Birth of a Nation, uh, I I believe it was it was a cultural phenomenon. It, it was, even by today's standards, it would probably, I think would probably uh, rate a higher percentage of the general population saw Birth of a Nation than any film in history. There's some crazy statistics about just how much of an impact it had and the fact that it was screened in the White House and endorsed by the president and the KKK made their largest march on Washington around this time, right? The largest gathering of KKK in the history of the country gathered to march on Washington around the same period of time. I, I, I hope I'm not overstating all of this, but those are all important parts of this, right? Yeah, you, uh, you're not overstating it. I mean, you see historic pictures of people in Klan robes walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. President Woodrow Wilson talked about this film as he said it was something like it had been written with lightning, that it was so true. Of course, we know that it was false, but it, it created this public narrative. It created the public narrative as a false public narrative of Black people, you know, being scary people, attacking white people. And we, right. we know that that's untrue. Historians say it was exactly the opposite. It was white people 
attacking Black people and Black communities. So you see the resurgence of the Klan. This is just after World War I. So you have Black veterans who had fought for democracy for their country in Europe, many of them fighting with, with uh, French troops and gun battles for democracy. They're, they're returning home to the United States. They're expecting to be greeted as heroes. Uh, they're expecting justice to be treated as equals. Many historians call this the age of the new Negro, uh, a Black people who are no longer willing to be subservient, who are standing up for democracy, who are demanding justice, who are demanding to be treated as full humans in a country that did not recognize their humanity. So our, your viewers have to know that in the Constitution at one point, they counted Black people as three-fifths of a human. Everybody knows, every first grader knows that three-fifths is not whole, right? Five-fifths is whole. That's in the Constitution. So again, the Black veterans are coming back to their hometowns full of pride, also, um, also demanding justice, willing to de defend their communities from attacks on white mobs. You see a rise in economic progress here on Black Wall Street. Greenwood was one of the most prosperous communities in the country. You had a population of 10,000 Black people. You had more than 35 grocery stores. You had a Black-owned hospital. You had a Black-owned library. You had like three hotels, a postal system. You had theaters, like really lavish theaters. You had luxury shops. You had Black millionaires here in this concentrated space, so prosperous that Booker T. Washington called it Negro Wall Street. You had a black man who owned six airplanes. You had a bus service, you had taxi service. So it was this beautiful black world here in Greenwood across the tracks, concentrated black wealth. That created econ economic envy amongst white people who were poor who lived south of the tracks. At the same time, you have a rise of the Klan here in Oklahoma. And it just sets the stage for this combustion of horrible events where white mobs are just attacking Black people and Black towns because um, they didn't want to see Black people prosper. They wanted to keep them in subordinate positions so that they would not assert their equality. This is what's all happening during Red Summer and leading up to the Tulsa Race Massacre. This is an important part of the film, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. And I remind our listeners that we are talking with, I'll call you the subject of the film, if that's okay, as well as Washington Post journalist, if, if that's, because you're you're our guide in this film, and that would be uh, Deneen Brown. She's uh, talking about what happened in Tulsa, but also around the country during this uh, this period of time between 1917 and 1923. But the film walks us through a lot of this history and also brings into the conversation the family members who whose families were the target of this race massacre in Tulsa. And the film is a, a good blend of sort of the, the historical context, but also personalizes it in such a way that, as I said to you before we got on camera, um, that is, you know, I thought I was pretty well educated 
I went to some good schools. I thought I knew a lot about the country. I was in politics for a number of years. I thought I knew a lot about these kinds of things. And this has been an issue. I mean, obviously, race disparity in this country has been something that has been a part of our history since 1619. So it's not something new. But I continue to find out about these stories, these things that were incredibly important and incredibly impactful. And yet I had no idea that they ever even happened, let alone understand the implications of them. And this is very unnerving to me, not only unnerving, but it's infuriating. And, and it, it says so much about the culture we still live in in many ways. Uh, I mean, a lot of people don't know that there was a deliberate conspiracy of silence to whitewash this period of history, to, to rewrite the history, to keep this horrific history out of textbooks so that you would not know about the, the reign of terror that's considered, that was called Red Summer. It was deliberately kept out of textbooks. It was deliberately covered up by civic and city officials. There was a conspiracy of silence. In fact, the mayor here in Tulsa says that it was a hundred year old cover up. He admits to that. You will see a, a scene in the film where I go to the University of Tulsa's McFarland Library interviewing the curator there, Mark Carlson, and he tells me a story of when he came to start his job at the library in the 1980s, someone had taken a razor to the periodicals and cut out any story that mentioned the Tulsa Race Massacre. Now, I often cite that as a concrete example of, of someone trying to erase this history. Documents went missing, not only in Tulsa, but in other places where massacres, massacres occurred in Red Summer. There was a shroud of silence you know, that, that covered the country. It is really shocking that very well-educated people, as you say, you went to some of the best schools don't know about this reign of terror that engulfed as many as 25 Black communities and cities. There were whole towns that were wiped out. Here in Tulsa, airplanes, they say it was the first aerial bombing of a U.S. city. White, white citizens took up, you know, went into airplanes and, and witnesses said that they dropped turpentine bombs on Black businesses and Black houses. So Tulsa became the first U.S. city bombed by air. It's all left out of the textbooks. Many people are just finding out about these horrible atrocities, about these massacres, about lynchings in their hometowns. Some people are finding out about that just now. I would, I would just amend what you said just slightly, and that is, other than putting aside the reports that the Japanese managed to bomb a couple of oil refineries in Santa Barbara during World War II, which are unconfirmed. I think this is the only time that I can think of that bombs were dropped from airplanes onto an American city in the history of the country. I, I, I Maybe there's something I don't remember or don't know about, but I think this is the only case that I can even think of where that would have been the case. So just, just so people understand how just in, when when I heard that part of the story, uh, it's it's uh, it's hard to believe, but not after you as you watch this film, it's not at all hard to believe. There's a report of someone in a machine gun nest up on top of a hill, shooting down onto people. 
Well, there's a great story told by one of the survivors, one of the really well-known survivors of the Tulsa race massacre, Olivia Hooker. She was six years old when the white mobs descended on Greenwood. And she tells the story of her, her family, family was very wealthy, a very wealthy black family. Um, and she tells the story of how her mother um, made her and her siblings get under the oak, oak table. And then she recounts how she heard the bang, bang, bang of, uh, of shots, bullets hitting her house. And she says to her, uh, her mother says, look out the window and there's a machine gun with an American flag on it. And her mother says to her, look, your country is shooting at you. There have been some wonderful documentaries of late, and I'll name a couple who we are. Uh, Professor Jer Jeffrey Robinson's film that's, I believe, coming out this summer. Uh, I just saw a documentary called Unmarked about the unmarked grave sites of many of the slaves in the South. Um, there's been a number of documentaries that are that are coming out with adding to our our uh, historic context for what was what has happened in our country. Is there some sense of having told this story, having gotten some feedback on this? Do you see a greater understanding, appreciation of what the history of our country is? Are you getting pushback? What's been, if, if you've had enough time to kind of process, if there has been, what is your impression of where we are in terms of acknowledging that this happened and then also coming to terms with it? Do you feel like there's some sort of an acknowledgement that, that will matter? Again, I'm in Greenwood, I'm in Tulsa, and just a few, few days ago, President Biden visited Greenwood he toured the Greenwood Cultural Center. He met with three of the last known living survivors of the Tulsa race massacre, Mrs. Viola Fletcher. She's 107. Her little brother, Van Hughes Ellis, he's 100. And there's another survivor, Lessie Benninghild Randall, who's 106. President Biden met with them. And he delivered a major policy speech here in Greenwood, but he talked about the past. He says this is a history that can no longer remain hidden, that people have to confront the past. He said that this is American history. And then he announced some, you know, that he would appoint Vice President Kamala Harris to lead a fight against voter suppression. And he, he called the, the, the right to vote a, a sacred right that's under assault. So I think President Biden was the first U.S. sitting U.S. president to visit Greenwood to talk about the Tulsa race massacre and to try to, he said he, he wanted to bring it into the light. So there is a new conversation happening about these racial terror massacres and, you know, to have a sitting U.S. president visit one of the sites of one of the worst race massacres in U.S. history shines a light on it. Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer will be premiering on the National Geographic Channel on June 18th at 9 p.m. Pacific and Eastern time. Be looking for it. And one, I don't even know if this is a good question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. There was some discussion in the film about reparations for the, for the families of this, the surviving families. And this is something, again, another bit of history that came to me fairly recently in that documentary film, Who We Are. 
and that is reparations have been paid in in regards to the the south and to slaves they were paid by the lincoln administration to slave owners which was another bit of a little bit of information that just shocked me to my core what do you mean reparations have already been paid i i just the discussion so much about race and about our history has is so distorted that we can't even have a regular conversation in in some truth bubble about it. Well, reparations is a big issue for the survivors and the descendants here in Tulsa and also in uh, sites of other uh, race massacres. Uh, It's a big part of the conversation. As you said, reparations were paid to enslavers. Uh, in, In DC, when enslaved black people were freed, the government actually paid at least $300 for each enslaved black person who was freed, paid $300 each to slave owners as part of of a package (laughs) uh, that people would say are reparations. Here in Tulsa, right after the massacre, many black people went down to the courthouse to file claims for their losses that amounted to then more than $4 million none of the claims filed by Black people were paid out. But two claims filed by white owners of gun stores from which white mobs took ammunition and guns, those white owners of those gun stores filed claims and they were paid for their losses. So there is a, there's a huge fight over reparations for Black people. As you know, the Survivors of the internment camps, Japanese internment camps, were paid reparations. You'll find historians saying that other groups have been paid reparations, but Black people in this country have not been paid reparations for either slavery, which is hundreds of years of free labor that actually built the country, or for their losses experienced from lynchings and racial terror. So it is, it's a huge conversation here in Tulsa, but across the country. H.R. 40, which is a bill uh, demanding that the country study reparations, just study it, was voted out in the House Judiciary Committee. It finally passed that committee and will be considered on the floor. It's just a study for reparations, but it's, it's a hot word. It is, but it's also a word that in, that is about accountability. That's that's the thing. I keep coming back to this. The fact that we can't even acknowledge that in 1619 people were brought to our shores in order to be enslaved. We can't even say that out loud without someone heckling you. By the way, those uh, store owners that you mentioned that got the reparations, there was ammunition being stockpiled all around Tulsa before the incident that occurred that sparked this thing, which tells me everything I need to know. This was going to happen no matter what. It just happened to be something that was conflated and convenient for them to do what they did. There's a lot to say. Historians say that the Klan was was in the background. They wanted the land. This this was valuable land. It It was an orchestrated assault. It was a planned assault. They were just waiting for a spark, and the the arrest of Dick Rowland provided them the the, the spark that they needed. And the KKK had spent time in a convention, the Veterans of the Confederate War, whatever their organization was called, were in Tulsa a couple of years before 
all of it. There's just so much. There's so much here. Rise again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. Deneen Brown, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you for your work as a journalist, and thank you for for being our guide in this in this story that we we see in Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. And all the best. Thank you so much. It was great to be on your show. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.